Hello, you are listening to Second City Sermons, a ministry of Second City Church in Midtown Harrisburg. This Epiphany in Lent, we are back in the Gospel of Luke, where we see God revealed in Jesus. As is common for Luke, what we see is the kingdom coming to all, but maybe most often to the unexpected. We'll see Jesus challenge his disciples, the rich young ruler and the proud religious leader, but commend a persistent widow, insist that the children come to him, and reveal that a blind beggar can see him for who he is even better than his own disciples. Finally, we will make our way with Jesus, his disciples, and the crowd around him as he enters Jerusalem on Holy Week long ago. We'd love to meet you, and we hope you'll consider coming and joining with us each Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in the heart of Midtown Harrisburg. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We hope you enjoy the sermon. God bless. You all probably know that the farm show started yesterday, right? I mean, everybody knows, if you're like, especially if you're around Harrisburg, you know the, the farm show season when it's begun. Um, and so what we're probably going to do is what we do every year. We're going to pile our kids into our car. We're going to find the parking lot that's, uh, like, if you just go over the McClay Street Bridge, this is a little insider knowledge. Go, just go over the McClay Street Bridge, and there's a parking lot right to your right. And you just walk right across McClay Street and across that tiny parking lot, and you are right there. Instead of parking in that crazy parking lot in Hack, which we did for the first two years we lived here. And I vowed to never go back to the farm show because it was so hard to get in. But then I figured it out. It's not in my manuscript. What's going to happen is that when you park, you're going to make your way into the McClay Street entrance, and you are going to see this lovely sculpture of butter. And you're going to be in awe of what people can do with butter. And you're going to make your way um, through rows of little corn kernels, and you're going to say, wow, look at how, how amazing it is that Pennsylvania can grow corn like that. And you're going to see the ridiculously long line for the milkshakes and for the cyclones. You're going to make your way through sheep and that were, are like amazingly, perfectly shorn. Um, you're going to make your way uh, to go see rabbits and roosters and cows. We will make our way to the tractors and sit on every single one of them. That is what you do when you have little boys and a little girl. Um, and what I sort of love is that Farm Show always coincides with celebrating Epiphany. I think it's just very um, fitting. There at the Farm Show, uh, everyone is putting their best foot forward, at least their best honey and their best Holsteins forward. Um, no one is going to the Farm Show uh, hoping that they don't take home ribbons, blue, red, whatever. Um, they come to bring their goods there, almost like the wise men long ago. And they're saying, look, look what I've done. They're uh, revealing. The farm shows a revelation of the agricultural goods of Pennsylvania. But it's also a revelation of the farmers, right? The beekeepers, the vegetable growers. And today is this first Sunday in Epiphany, after Epiphany. And it starts this uh, season in the church calendar that we sort of focus specifically on God, how God has revealed himself, shown himself. Um, this is why, at least at our church, we always spend this time in the gospel books. And if you're keeping track, this is actually the eighth epiphany we've been in Luke. It's not going to be the last one, actually, either, as I've mapped it out. Um, but God has taken on flesh. 
That's what we celebrate in Christmas. And he's revealed himself in Jesus, in his incarnation. He's appeared and he's revealing who he is. And of course, the passage that's most often used in Epiphany is the passage of the wise men, right? God for the world, not just God localized for the Jews, but God for the world. He's revealing that he's for anyone who has ears to hear or heart that's soft to receive, eyes to see him. He reveals uh, those who are looking for life and those who are seeking death. I think it's actually really, really appropriate that we're here in the middle of Luke chapter 17 for Epiphany. Um, It's not the normal text, but it's a text that seems very fitting because Epiphany is this revealing of God. But when when God is revealed, it's never just about the revelation of God. It's also about the revelation of humankind. What do we do with him? Do we receive him? Are we like the wise men that are searching after him, that we might worship him, give him our offering ourselves, or are we like Herod, seeking death and destruction? When God is revealed, it's always not just a revelation of God, but of us, too. And that's what happens here in this passage. So, okay, this is very simple. I've got kind of two main points, the revealing of God and the revealing of humankind, okay? Two points. Look with me down at the passage, just the first little bit. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Here's the question that they were coming to Jesus with. When will it come? When will it come? That's the question. We want to know what time. Now, you have to understand that the Jews long ago, really like sort of everyone around the world, actually, they had, they had um, what's called an eschatology, an understanding of the end times, the end days, what would happen in those last events. Um, the prophets of the Old Testament, like we read about in Amos and, and many others, spoke of the day of the Lord. Um, a day when God would reveal himself in grace and in judgment. That's what we heard there in Amos. And um, for the most part, then, just like it is today, everyone thought they would be on the right side of that revealing. So when would it come that they might re- be revealed to be the ones that are in the right? right? The Pharisees like, hey, when he, when's the kingdom of God going to come? So that everybody can know that we got it right and they didn't. The Jews uh, had this understanding, and, it, and of course, the understanding of the end times was tied to the, their idea of the Messiah, right? The promised one that would come, the seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the son of David, the promised one. And you might know this, but Jesus wasn't the only sort of Messiah that was around, sort of around that time. There were other people that were they're claiming to be the Messiah. Um, but of course, Jesus... Uh, was this one that was proclaiming the kingdom of God. And so people were asking, well, is this going to be the time? Is this going to be the time? Jesus is saying that he's proclaiming the kingdom of God. When's it going to come? Some of you, um, when you hear this passage, you think of all the times sort of in our own day, maybe especially in the 20th century, but even now, where Christians have just been obsessed with the timing. When is God going to finally come and reveal himself fully in grace and in judgment? When's it going to happen? 
It's going to happen when the United Nations is formed. Well, that passed. It's going to happen when the European Union has 10 members. They've got a lot more than that now. Um, we're always looking for signs, right? We're wanting to know, God, tell us like, exactly when it's going to happen so that we can just observe it. And we can maybe prepare for that time, or we can maybe just live our lives however we want until we know that it's going to come on that date. When will the kingdom come? Um, Hilary of Poitiers, a French bishop in the early church, said it was going to happen in the year 365. Martin of Tours, also French, believed the year 400. That was the year. This is what he said. There's no doubt that the Antichrist has already been born Firmly established already in his early years, he will, after reaching maturity, achieve supreme power. Um, Hippolytus, um, Sextus Julius Africanus, and Aaron, uh, Irenaeus, um, some of you know that those were great leaders in the early church, they all believed that the Lord would return in the year 500, without doubt. Probably know that the year 1000 was believed by many, many people to be the time when Jesus would return and the kingdom of God would be fully brought in. But there was debate a lot of times because would it happen on the, thousand, the millennium of his birth or of his death? So a lot of people believed it would not be the year 1000, but the year 1033. Pope Innocent III predicted it would happen 666 years after the rise of Islam. Well, the rise of Islam happened in 618, so the year would be 1284. Uh, in the beginning of 1524, 20,000-ish people living in London fled London because there were all these astrologers. Actually, it was like a group of astrologers that together said, it's going to be on the 20th of February in 1524, and the coming day of the Lord would begin with the flood that came out from London and covered the earth. And so 20,000 people left and sought higher ground. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, believed that the year 1600 was the likely year of the Lord's return. Cotton Mather, the great New England Puritan, his father was the president of Harvard for years. Increase Mathers. Isn't that a funny first name, Increase? He predicted, Cotton Mather predicted it was the year 1697. He later um, changed that date twice and outlived every one of his predictions. You probably know I could go on and on and on. This is a small sampling. Um, which is part, so part of what I'm saying is that the Pharisees, they're not that crazy. And if you kind of go, oh, the people that are predicting that it's the rise of the EU or whatever have you, they're not an anomaly. People have been asking about time from time eternity. God, tell me when. Tell me when. Yet, if you were maybe attentive, Jesus doesn't even answer their question. Jesus does this a lot, almost especially in Luke. He hears their question. He's like, that's not the question they're supposed to be asking. So I'm not going to answer it. That's what he does. He doesn't ask, answer the question they ask. He answers the question that they need. Not when, but where and who. Who? 
He says, the thing that you're longing for is literally right in front of you. It's right here. Your desires are for the kingdom of God. Your desire is for the king. For me. It's right in front of you. If you would have ears to hear, if you'd have eyes to see me. Don't miss me is what Jesus is saying. This is what Jesus says. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Now, that might seem a little odd. Um, but most people believe that what he's saying is that uh, it's not going to be the great spectacle that you're asking for. It's not going to have clear signs that you're like, oh, bam, this means that means that, and I can calculate this state so I can live however I want to here as long as I get it right right then. Nor will they say, look, here it is there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It says, I am the king, and where I am is the kingdom of God. What you're hoping for and what you're preparing for, what you're looking for is right here, right in front of you. I am the revelation of God. How you engage with me has everything to do with your future. How you engage with me has everything to do with your future. And you can be so consumed with figuring out the kingdom and when it will be and what it will look like. This is what he's saying. That you'll fail to see me. And that will be your great demise. I'm right here in the midst of you. What he's saying, and this is I think what we need to hear this morning, is how you engage with Jesus is the most important question of your life. And you're going to ask all these other things, and sometimes they're circling around it, but unless you answer that question, you're missing it. What do you think of Jesus? Can you see him? Do you love Jesus? I think that's just a great question to begin this new year. Right? We're asking ourselves, who will we be this year? What will I pursue? What's going to be in front of me? Jesus say, saying, you're missing me right when I'm in the midst of you. Do you love me? I mean, I know that we can uh, obsess over so many questions in our lives, so many questions of theology and all kinds of things that beg for our attention. And Jesus is just saying, I'm right here. Do you love me? Do you see me? Do you desire me? So I want you to ask. I want you to ask, maybe today around the table or maybe by yourself on a walk, where am I at with Jesus right now? Where am I with Jesus this year? Because Jesus is the revelation of God. That's what Epiphany is celebrating, that God's revealed himself in Jesus. Your greatest desires are found in Christ. He's our longing. He's our hope. He's the king of our desires. His kingdom is the reign that we long for. So here's how these things work together, right? I said this already. But the revealing of God always reveals us too. When he comes, he doesn't just reveal himself. He also reveals our hearts and our desires and our, what we give our attention to. It's not just about the revelation of God, but it's about the revelation of humankind. Now, it seems very appropriate now in this very serious text to remind you of one of the best skits from The Office. Um, there is a bit in The Office between Jim and Dwight there are lots of really good bits between Jim and Dwight. But there's a really, really great one. 
where, and it begins with uh, all these huge cans in front of Dwight, and he's got one of these like industrial food cans full of tomatoes, and he's just like eating his lunch with everybody, you know? And this is how the conversation goes. I have the best survival stock shelter in northeastern Pennsylvania. But everything has a shelf life, so I must eat and replace everything that's about to expire. It's nice to not have to plan, in, plan my meals, Kevin says. You're eating eight-year-old tomatoes. They're still good for another week. Meredith says, you know, I think I have some type of cheese in the back of my fridge you might like. Kevin, I've got some cheese you might like, too, in between my toes. <laughs> and Dwight says, hardy, har, har. Okay, picture this. Snowy ash drizzles from the sky. A ravenous pack of dogs surrounds you as the flame at the end of your stick dies out. There's only one hope left for you. The door to my shelter. You pound, you beg. Dwight, please let me in. But I ignore your cries and do not let you in. You want to know why? Because of the sign, this is what Jim says, because of the sign that says no pounding and no begging? No, because you laughed at me. Kevin will be eaten. Pam will be taken slave. Jim will be made a warlord's gesture. Meredith will do okay. <laughs> I think that's the funniest line, actually. Be assured, this day will come. It's just a matter of time. Could be one month. Could be two months. Jim says, three months? Could be. Four months? I can see that happening, yes. Eight months? That's a realistic timeline. Eleven months? Perhaps. Okay, now really think hard about this one. One year. I can see that as a very real possibility. Now, this is awesome. If you watch this scene, everybody in the, in, in the room is gone. And it's just Jim and Dwight going with each other. And Jim says, 494 months? <laughs> and Dwight says, I can see that happening. And Jim, to close out the scene, says, 495 months. <laughs> this is an amazing skit. And what is so great about it is it's sort of revealing, of course, their constant banter in it. And it's sort of revealing, in some ways, the absurdity of Dwight and the silliness of Jim to still be sitting there after 495 months of being asked this question, or being how that question came. But it's revealing sort of what they're, you know, what they're doing. It's revealing them. It's revealing them, them, of course, in this sort of apocalyptic way. But what I'm suggesting to you is that all of these things are revealing not just God, but us. What do we think? Who are we? How are we in the world? Okay, so this is how Jesus' second, or the second paragraph uh, begins here. Jesus is talking to his disciples now, not the, not the Pharisees, and he says this. The days are coming when you'll desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say, look here, and, and look here. Do not go out or follow them. He's talking to his disciples here. His, and his disciples, in some ways, this is actually kind of comforting, right? Because in some ways, his disciples weren't terribly different from the Pharisees. They're desiring to see it and to have the spectacle, the, you know, the observable thing that says, look here and look there and this and that and that. 
they have the same temptations, and they desire to see it. They too had an had a idea of the end time, and they too had a desire, just like we do, for the kingdom of God to be fully revealed. And they had an idea of what it would look like. In fact, as we kind of go through the end of Luke, it seems as though the disciples bring this up again and again. They're desirous to see, where is it going? What's going to happen? When will you come again? When will the kingdom be fully revealed? In fact, somebody has counted, and um, there's about 300 references in the New Testament to the second coming of Jesus, which means actually that it's about one in every 13 verses. So it's a huge emphasis, right, in the New Testament. And it's not exactly like you should fault the disciples uh, for looking for it and for desiring it and for kind of going, well, when will this be? Um, it's not like you should fault them either for thinking that actually Jesus was going to bring in the kingdom fully and completely. Because in the New Testament, we actually don't have any sort of clear idea from the, or, sorry, from the Old Testament that the coming of God would happen in two stages, one in the middle of history and one at the end. The Old Testament's not very clear about that. So, um, you, you, sh- you, you shouldn't fault the disciples or even the Pharisees here for going, we desire this and we don't know when it's going to happen. We don't know what, is gonna, what it's going to look like. Um, Jesus tell, tells them that they will look for this. They will desire it. And they will wish they are with him and they won't see it. Or at least, they're not going to be looking always in the right places. They'll look for signs like the Pharisees will, but they won't see those signs. Um, he also says this, though, For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, this is the next verse, so will the Son of Man be in his day. He says you're going to look for it, and you're going to desire it, you're going to see it, you're going to be told to look here and to look there. But he says, I'm telling you that when it comes... It's going to be so clear that nobody's going to miss it. In fact, there's this weird parable at the end of this passage where he says this, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Which means it's going to be unmistakable because vultures always go to the corpse. Jesus knew what's going on inside of them. And so this next section actually in this text, he starts to speak to the difficulty of waiting. The difficulty of waiting. And first, he speaks to this, this difficulty, um, and the one that they were both most immediately about to experience, and that is um, suffering. First, Jesus' own suffering. Verse 25, it says this, um, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Now, you might know passages like Isaiah 53, and the disciples probably knew that, But there weren't tons and tons of passages in the Old Testament that said that there would be this suffering servant that was going to come. And basically nobody at the time of Jesus really thought that the kingdom would come and be present among them and not deal with this problem of Rome. I mean, if the king was going to come, absolutely he would dethrone Rome. He wouldn't be put on a Roman cross. So there's this difficulty of suffering, first Jesus' own suffering, But then there's also the difficulty of the suffering of the disciples. Think with me. As soon as Jesus actually is taken away, right, for his own suffering, they say, wait, we don't want to follow him because if we follow him, we might suffer. 
right? Um, many, many throughout the life of the church have given up following Jesus to the end because they've suffered for doing so. Just like the disciples said, I, we, we don't know him. Because they were fearful of the cross, people throughout time have done the same. They have found the treasures of Egypt to be greater than association with Christ. The glories of Rome to be more attractive than Jesus. The laughter of their co-workers in the 21st century. More pleasing than the declaration by the master, well done, good and faithful servant. Right? You don't want to suffer the rejection of your friends because you follow Jesus to the end. I think the word of God is truly God's word. Part of the difficulty of waiting for Jesus is that we often give up simply because of suffering. And Jesus is saying, stick with it. It's going to be clear when it happens, even though people are trying to steer you away from it. Another part is that we simply give up, and I, don't, I think this is just the best word that might seem odd, because of worldliness. It's a good preacher word. Worldliness, an improper and an unhealthy love for this world. Don't get me wrong. I think this is really important, and I, I hope you hear this enough here. There is a love for this world that we actually ought to cultivate. For God so loved the world that he gave, right? And actually appreciation for this, the things of this world. I don't think Jesus is talking about that here at all. He's saying that there's actually an improper worldness. Um, that we're charmed by it. We're overtaken by the things of this world. Uh, we're enchanted and beguiled by the things of this world. And we just want them to continue. We actually don't really desire the kingdom to come because, God, this world is so great. So let me continue on. Verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be when the son of, uh, in, the, in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when, the, when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. The one who cannot imagine, here's what's happening, cannot imagine leave, uh, life without those things. They're consumed with them. They're enchanted by them. Um, on that day, let the one who's on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife who turned back. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, in that night there will be two... In one bed, one will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken, and the other left. I know all the conversations about left behind. And let me actually tell you this. This is an important aside quickly. Commentators are not remotely convinced that the better one is the one who's left or the one who's taken. Actually, there's good arguments to be made on both sides of that, interestingly enough. So don't hear left behind with all that. This is what you need to hear from this passage. We can be so in love with the eating and the drinking and the buying and the selling and the giving in marriage and taking in marriage 
and the planting and the building. We can just be so in love with the things of this world that our desire for God and our attentiveness to him, our longing for his kingdom to come to bear on earth as it is in heaven, just fades. It's just not that important. Remember, Jesus is speaking to his disciples here. You know, the churchgoers here. And he knows that we are tempted to preserve our own life rather than to lose it. We're like the disciples, right? Who say, we don't want to follow you to a cross. We're like the ones who are taken out from slavery in Egypt who say, man, life was a lot better back then. And the temptation is for you and for me, just like for the people of Noah's day and in Sodom, eating and drinking and buying and selling and saying, oh, how great the things of this world are. And our hearts just go after these things and lose sight and lose desire for God and for his kingdom. What he says is if you seek to preserve your life now, you will lose it then. If you practice giving it up now, you will gain it then. What do you want? Um, my pastor, uh, growing up, he said this. Um, they used to say that the Cinderella of the Apostles' Creed, the dogma or tenant that's most overlooked, the one that you don't talk about too much, you know, keep it tucked away, was I believe in the Holy Spirit. He says, nowadays, I suspect the Cinderella of the Apostles' Creed is he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Some of that is the result of 2,000 years of waiting. It's been a long time. It has been. And the inevitable loss of concentration on an event that seems never to come. Some of it is the consequence of far too much foolish speculation among Christians. Speculation that has served basically to diminish our interest in looking for the second coming or to fuel our suspicion that the second coming will never occur. I mean, it's laughable how often Christians say, look, that's the sign of the end. Some of it is the timidity of Christians who fear being laughed at for proclaiming the return of Christ. But it's mostly worldliness. We are beguiled by this world and the things of this world. We want them to continue. It's far easier for a Christian man in the Sudan suffering terrible want of the necessities of life and fearing for the life of his children. It's far easier for such a man to believe in the second coming and the judgment of the wicked than it is for comfortable American Christians to do so. You just have life really good. What I'm suggesting to you is that Jesus reveals God in his first coming, and he will absolutely re reveal God in his second coming. But here is what I want to suggest to you this morning. That whenever God appears, he's not just being revealed, but he's also revealing us. 
that that's what Jesus is doing with the Pharisees and the disciples. He's saying, I'm right here. This is what you long for, and your heart's being revealed as I'm in your midst. But when Jesus comes again, he will also reveal our hearts and reveal our loves. And the question for us this morning from this passage from Luke chapter 17 from our Lord is will you pay attention to his warnings? Will you receive Jesus' warnings this morning? Will you have eyes to see him, ears to hear him, hearts to receive him? He will reveal our loves and our desires. He'll reveal whether we've sought to preserve our life or to give it up. He will, see, he will reveal whether or not we have sought first his kingdom and his righteousness. Or our own kingdoms. Or the kingdoms of this world. God is going to come. And he will reveal all things. Will we be ready? Will we be ready to receive him? I'm going to read to you the ending of a, a poem that I've read these last couple of weeks that is about the Magi. I'll end there. This is uh, T.S. Eliot's poem, The Journey of the Magi. And the first sections are all about this actual journey that they go on. But I want to read to you the very end, end part. Um, this last stanza. This is after the fact. After they've you know, traveled and come back home. and Well, it begins like this. All this was a long time ago. This is how it continues. I remember. And I would do it again, but set down, this set down, this. Were we led all that way for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but had never, but had thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us. Like death, our death. We return to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death. What uh, T.S. Eliot is saying is that these, these magi, these wise men, they came and they saw Jesus. And they saw that, that in Christ there was something greater than the things of this world. That the clutching onto the gods of this world was something that they no longer even desired because they saw Jesus for who he was and they desired him and him alone. And so they could actually desire another death because there would be Jesus with them then. You see, they had actually encountered Jesus. Jesus had been revealed to them. His epiphany had fully come to them. And they saw him for who he was, God himself. And they said, do away with the things of this world. Because Jesus is my greatest desire. He was revealed. And in their case, at least according to Eliot, their hearts were revealed as true hearts that desired God first and foremost. Will that be true of you? Let me just end there. Give us a few seconds of silence to reflect on that question, and I'll pray.
Lord, thinking even now of uh, the farm show happening and the wonder at this beautiful world that you've made and, and the gift of cheese and sheep, of wool, uh, the wonder of a people that tend to your creation and love it. God, we do pray that you would give us a love for the world that you have made that, that, that mimics yours, that looks upon it and says good and delights in it. But God, would we please, God, move in each one of us this morning that we would seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and know that the other things will be added. They'll fall in place. God, I pray that this year, for us who are part of this church, God, that our priorities will be straight. That we'll love you with our whole heart, with our whole mind, and with our whole strength, with all of our being. And then we'll properly love our neighbors as ourselves. God, today, would we each ask, where are we with Jesus? God, we're thankful for passages like this that speak in some ways to our fears and to our questions, but also speak to us and challenge us of the necessity of devotion to you and to you alone. May we be marked by that this year, Lord. May we, Second City Church, all together and individually be known as people that love you, delight in you. Seek first your kingdom. Hear these prayers, Lord, please. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to Second City Sermons Podcast. We hope this sermon has encouraged you to worship God and to celebrate the gospel of Jesus. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and joining us in person each Sunday at 10 a.m. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks again for listening. God bless.